Black River Falls, Badger State Banner, 18 June 1896. The motto of the high school graduating class of 96, according to the paper, was Vim, Vigor, and Victory. 1896 was the last year of a severe depression that had begun with the bank panic of 1893. At its height, 19% of American workers had lost jobs. The middle class lost homes on foreclosed mortgages by the thousands. 15,000 companies shut down. More than 500 banks failed. The worst of it occurred in Midwestern states like Wisconsin. By 1896, however, times began changing. The progress of science and affluence put forth promise and portent. The Klondike Gold Rush began in earnest after Kate Carmack and Skookum Jim found motherlodes in the Bonanza Creek. Tens of thousands stampeded north for their fortune. In that year, too, scientists used x-rays for the first time to reveal the skeleton in a live human body. In that year, History recorded the first time that an automobile killed a pedestrian, a woman holding the hand of her child as she crossed the road. Our story takes place 25 years earlier, in 1871, when America was peaking in prosperity. A panic very like the one of 1893 was just two years off, and its depression would darken lives for a decade. But in 1871, as I say, America reveled in prosperity and optimism. The centennial of our independence on the horizon. New railroads flung for miles and miles each new day. Our banks and granaries bursting. Our hopes at a peak, rising on our soaring ambitions. Chicago, America's new Rome, is coming into its heyday. The Palmer House Hotel there, newly built, had just opened a week before the events which we shall relate. Its enormous marbled gold-leaf frescoed lobby comfortably trafficked hundreds of patrons at a time, or directed them aside to elegant salons for dining, drinking, shopping, or barbering. Also in marble, gold-leaf with frescoes of the French pastorals, princesses playing as shepherdesses. The story that follows, The Southwest Wind, is the account of the events of October 8, 1871, including the fate of that new hotel in Chicago.
In that summer of 1871, the southwest wind came constantly. The southwest wind was the only wind. It brought heat, but it brought no water. It brought searing sun and no cloud and no rain. It had no fruit and gave no pleasure. Like a crone, it had no more life to bear. Like a dead man, it had no happiness to share. All the marshes dried up to dust. All the grasses withered into hair. All the leaves clenched into fists. All our fields became as empty deserts in the many days of drought before the comet came. A man of God, not one ordained of man, wandered among us. He was a man with no hat and no shoes. He came to our farmyards and spoke the holy words like these I am about to tell. He came to our streets and stood there and said such words there also. And no one heeded them. He howled like a coyote that is hungry. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong people. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. It had begun a good summer. It had begun with many luscious rains. It had drenched our fields and made our woodlands lush and filled all the reservoirs of the earth. It had begun with blooming flowers. It had begun with the births of many livestock and many babies, and a happy wedding in the church of two who had loved each other since they were infant playmates. The town gazette had forecast plenty and prosperity. The town minister had given thankful blessings upon the bride and groom. The peddler had seen all this, and he certainly believed that when he returned in the autumn, he would profit well from the wealth that had been forecast. That spring, in the sugar bush, beyond the town, the freshly budding maple trees, tapped when snows still skirted them, gave rich syrup in so much bounty that our buckets overflowed. Bounteous as the honey-dew that lacquered leaves each dawn, on which the Israelites were sustained by Yahweh in their exodus to new land and liberty. Just so we felt affirmed in this our chosen land, this blessed America, this Eden, beautiful, naturally abundant, and free. Truly one must work hard, one must work very hard. Truly one must sacrifice and be righteous, but God has given bounty for our asking. God has given us this, our land. The peddler could also see this, and he could witness the confidence of our settlers, the optimism of our businessmen, and the sincere rhetoric of our politicians and ministers. He could see it for himself in the land itself. For 
very like a sign of those times, this thing happened. A day out of town, the peddler stopped to camp where he found another man camping and joined him and shared his beans with him. The man called himself John, and as the two of them sat at their supper, that great annual flock of game birds arose from the southwest, a southwest wind bringing them in the millions, made a river across the sky from the horizon out of which they endlessly poured to the horizon toward the distant town. And in some year later, this very same John Muir, who sat beside the peddler and shared his wonder at the magnificence of life and God, wrote his witness to the same sight. So large this flock was flowing over from horizon to horizon in an almost continuous stream all day long, at the rate of forty or fifty miles an hour like a mighty river in the sky, widening, contracting, descending, like falls or cataracts, and suddenly rising here and there in huge, ragged masses like high, plashing spray. That summer, they counted 136 million of these pigeons in the air, or at nest in our territory. And every man and boy might take a gun, any gun, and might shoot them down in great numbers at will. A man with a common single-barrel shotgun might take down five or six at a time, and it made not a noticeable gap in the mass of them, not a loss that anyone could see. They piled up, fallen dead to the ground, like hail out of a thunderstorm. And you might shoot them, and shoot them until too weary to hold up a rifle and you had too many to clean, and far more than you ever may eat. But they smoked them, or pickled them, and boxed them, and sent them east for sale, and a single barrel of thirty of them brought thirty or forty dollars, and that is as much as most men make in a couple months of work. Though in those days there were in our nation maybe three billion of these birds, after ten years of such lethal harvests, they were mostly gone, and the last one died soon after in a zoo in Cincinnati. For that matter, the last buffalo had been killed in these parts long before this, and no one can claim to have ever seen a cougar, a fisher, a marten, a caribou, or an elk, which in their days the Indians tell us that they found as numerous as we find people on the street nowadays. Now the beaver once talked about are not to be found either. And the white fish and the trout once caught on our great lake by the tens of thousands of pounds are not found in our nets anymore. And the lake water falls through the empty skein in testament to what has been done. Just after noon of October the 7th, a man with no hat and no shoes stood at the intersection of Emory Avenue and French Street, where also terminated Oconto Street, coming at the angle there. French Street ran into the three-lane bridge and the wide-abutting platform that stood on trestles and spanned the whole river, overbuilt with associated factories and storehouses, overhanging and exploiting 
the power of the Pashtigo River which crashed beneath it. Because he stood at the intersection of all this business, the crowd of people thickened at that particular point. It was always busy there because there were both the sawmill and the flour mill, which were set below the rapids and the wing dam that deepened their powerful fall, and it drew a crowd for a man to stand in the middle of this intersection in any case and would always clot the traffic of vehicles, especially early on a Saturday such as this. For Saturdays were not just another work day, but being the end of the week, it was the custom to haul in logs for sawing and grain for milling, which a week-long labor had garnered. And it was also a good day for shopping for those who needed some store-bought necessities and for those who could afford to shop for more than they needed. After having crossed the bridge, the peddler had halted his wagon to witness this scene. The hatless, shoeless man enthralled his crowd, though he did not speak to them so much as to the sky, his arms outstretched to it, as he declared, Blow ye, trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. So speaking, his voice resounded like a clarion call, the thundering blast of a brazen trumpet by a descending angel from heaven, commanding our attention and causing our trepidation. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array, for their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness, they shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the wall, they shall climb up upon the houses, they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. For a moment, in hesitation of their comprehension, all assembled seemed stunned. But when the hatless, shoeless man dropped his arms and, looking sheepish, looked upon them, as if just awakened from a dream, a great drunk bull of a man, splendidly dressed, and a body of his grinning buddies sidled to him with a bottle of whiskey and proffered it to him, whereupon several onlookers laughed and others muttered aspersions. The hatless, shoeless man looked upon the young man as if he might his mother, if she had awakened him, and with a kind and loving acknowledgment, misfit to the circumstance, he seemed clearly out of his mind, and the crowd held pity for him and contempt for those mocking him. 
The peddler slapped the reins upon his team's backside, and they made off up French Street to where it departed the city and was renamed Pestigo Road upon its entry into the sugar bush and the wide forests and the distant prairie westward. The Bradstreets in the Sugar Bush were a pilgrim couple, come from Plymouth of the old settlement of our new world. He, Goodman Bradstreet, was descendant of the community of the Mayflower Compact and would be himself a reverend minister to its survivors, but that the community had dissolved into the woods, into the cities, into a world wider than his rigorous faith allowed and they found themselves almost alone and certainly destitute until God spoke to Goodman of new frontiers. She, Goodwife Bradstreet, was small, delicate, and fair like a child, and now past the time of her fertility found herself childless. But she accepted her portion as she accepted her marriage and found comfort at last in her new home, her books, and the letters of friends in Massachusetts to whom she wrote daily. The peddler took to visiting the Brad Streets in his regular circuit through these parts. After several other farms of less industrious persons, he found this farm with its scrubbed floors, its washed windows, its tidy, simple furniture, to be a pleasure, like a visit to a good hotel, and he was always rewarded with an excellent meal and respectful courtesy. Goodman Bradstreet bargained hard, but bargained fair, and the peddler reciprocated, and they held each other in a mutual esteem different though they be. He told them at the table talk on that late afternoon tea how he had witnessed the street ministry of the hatless, shoeless man, and goodwife Bradstreet expressed her heart for him, feeling his poverty and despair sadly, while Goodman Bradstreet frowned and was silent upon the subject. At length the peddler bade them goodbye and returned to his westward trek out of the sugar bush and into the pine forest. It was that evening, then, that he stopped to supper with John Muir at dusk, as the pigeons swept the sky. And it struck them both as strange that this migration was opposite for the season, that they were born upon the southwest wind seemed the only explanation. And it was true that it was a hot, dry wind, and that perhaps the season of winter shall come postponed this year. So then, chatting pleasantly, they let their fire die as they prepared to accept the darkness and the sleep that would come, and Muir noted the peculiar glimmerings in the woods, and spoke of them to the peddler, saying that he'd seen them now for many nights. Woods, 
gleaming everywhere with small fires, some spreading, fading. At night, the sound of crackling fires in the wood, tongues of fire along the ground, burning the brush, dead leaves, inflaming dry leaves on trees like a flash, but leaving them unscathed, though sooty. Muir observed how fire on the prairie is gone in a breath, swept with a wind changing grasses to ashes in an instant. A man who stands in it is singed in a moment and left standing hairless and nude in amazement. But fire in the forest is a holocaust, a horror of days, fuel for hell that is endlessly painful. A man in this conflagration, his whole body, is broiled, burned, roasted, and charred to his bones. Upon this thought, the both of them slept uncomfortably that night, and well they might. For several locals in the sugar bush had confronted fire in recent days, and had seen those fires strangely appear like match strikes, where there had been just before the odd gleams of a bluish gas, a plasma, as some would tell. On the day, but one before this, after visiting a widow for her prayers, Father Pernan had to forcibly drive his team through a membrane of blue flame that fully spanned the Peshtigo Road, high as a great city gate of old Europe. He was unhurt, not even singed, but he recounted his amazement, for it was as if the thin, searing wall of bluish flame had been the pure product of natural gas. Because of fear for forest fires, because of the drought, hogsheads of water had been placed variously at the edges of Peshtigo for several weeks, and some citizens assumed a watch, however inconstantly, as the fear of fire seemed to come and go with sightings and rumors. Chicago itself, which also suffered the drought and the southwest wind, had caught fire a few days ago in its western division, so Captain Maximilian Robin told. He reported the lurid thrill of it colorfully to the tavern crowd in Peshtigo that Saturday night. Fire had burned up a full twenty blocks of homes and gardens and stables and shops, he said but had been deftly put down by the renowned firefighters of that great city. And so he extolled the elaborate waterworks that the city had just engineered, the most modern in the West, modeled on the best of Boston. It took water from the Great Lakes into its famous water tower, and acting upon its gravitational force, jetted water hydraulically to all environs of the great city, feeding hydrants to quench fire, as well as citizens their thirst. Chicago, divided by the Chicago River in a T, had put its water tower in the northern division strategically near the Great Lake and near the mouth of the river that emptied into it. From there it protected all surrounding mansions, the Gold Coast of Chicago, the elegant Fields department store, as great and magnificent as Herod's, from which one could buy a live monkey, or Parisian gowns, or raw blue-point oysters shipped on ice from the Cape. 
From there, it protected the business district to the south side of the main channel of the Chicago River. On the cozy south side of the T, there was the courthouse and jails, the post office, and enormous stone mercantile blocks of insurance companies, dealers and brokers, shirt factories and the like, as well as the best and the least refined of the theaters and eateries, hotels, townhouses, and tenements. Beyond the top of the T, where the Chicago River went due south to one right angle and due north to the other, lay the Western Division, and it was the particularly populous south side of that division that this fire had occurred. But because, like all of Chicago, it was indomitably guarded by the best waterworks in the West, it was swiftly saved, though it blew up like tinder in those relentless, hot, dry, southwest winds. Captain Robin drank with gusto always, but was particularly effusive that night, having made friends with so many fellow travelers that were there. He had stopped in the tavern of Peshtigo to overnight, while the Adonis took on a load of wood for its steam engine, after having dropped off three hundred working men for William G. Ogden, millionaire of Chicago, whose local factory in Peshtigo made pails, tubs, buckets, bowls, spoons, broom, and shovel and axe handles, toothpicks, barrel covers, barrels, and clothespins. Some of these who came would work for the independent foundry that manufactured the barrel hoops, and some came to answer advertisements for the sawmill and the nearby sash, door, and blind factory. On the eve of October the 8th, the population of Pastigo had swollen to over 1,700 souls, fully half of whom were this itinerant labor and a large body of whom were newly arrived for work that would be starting Monday morning. In preparation for this, the sawmill had been feverishly operating for weeks, piling sawdust to a mountain on the bank of the river, and was just that day shut down finally for the first Sabbath in a fortnight to let the steam out of its valves and its workers. The saloons were full and noisy, the boarding houses were triple booked. Besides its steamboat dock, Pestigo had recently got the railroad and had built a schoolhouse. Shops had crowded out houses on downtown streets and new rows of houses were being freshly built on the outskirts. Pestigo's one and original congregational church on Emory Street was now to be joined by a new Catholic church being built at the edge of the woods on the end of French Street. It would be Father Pernan's second parish, his first being that of Marinette, in the logging district north, off a narrow tributary to the same green bay to which the Peshtigo River terminated. Father Pernan's church was just then ready for plastering. Lime and marble dust was heaped in front of the church, where also the pews, altar, and ornaments had been removed for work. There would be no mass that Sunday on account of this, 
but he would embark on his first and neglected parish by boat to give mass there instead. In the heavy evening air, an air of still and sodden atmosphere, in which the sweat of effort did not evaporate and could not cool, he assembled his tabernacle and listened to the disquiet in the woods, the portentous rustle. The silver crucifix that he handled was cool, and he put it briefly to his cheek and closed his eyes in prayer, then wiped it well with the robe sleeve before he housed it with the sacraments. On the morning of October the 8th, Father Pernan was awakened by the scrapes of shoveling outside his bedroom window and next to the church. There he found an old Canadian jack, a parishioner of Marinette, who'd come down to help him build the new church, digging. Digging since before dawn, he said, because he had a foreboding. He did not like the feel of the air, he said. What are you digging? asked Father Pernan. A well, said he, and continued digging until late that afternoon when water at last broke in and rose up the hole. He finished as it happened just as Father Pernan was leaving his house, carrying a bundle of his sacramental robes, to take the steamboat upriver to Marinette so that he may perform mass at Vespers. At the dock he met Captain Robin, who stood before his white, castellated steamboat, greeting customers for his return to Chicago. The Adonis was the largest steamboat to come up the inlet of the bay to Peshtigo. Her draw is too great to go upstream, he regretted. Father Pernan said he intended to take the Dunlap, which was soon to arrive. But Captain Robin said that he knew their ship and had passed her in the bay on the way yesterday and by calling across the water was told it would not be making the trip to Peshtigo that day, on account of fear of things seen in the sky. "'What things?' asked Father Pernan. And Captain Robin replied that he did not know, that the captain of the Dunlap was a strange bird as ever he had seen, so it could not be known what he meant. "'Why, I've known him to clutch the coast like a child his mama's skirt, just cause there were rumors of winds. But he acknowledged that his Adonis was the hardier, heftier craft, and practically seaworthy. The Adonis it disembarked shortly, and Father Pernan waited, alone, on the dock, until it was too late to get to Marinette to perform a Vesper Mass that evening. The Dunlap, indeed, never did arrive, Father Pernan turned back to go uphill, up French Street, to his parish house. 
Two days hence, sipping water on a velvet settee of the Adonis in the aftermath, Father Pernan would recall for the captain what then occurred the rest of that terrible day. At a short distance from home, on the other side of the street, was a tavern. This place had been crowded all day with revelers, more than 400 young men having arrived that yester morning at Peshtigo by your boat to work, as you should know. Many were scattered throughout the town, where they had met acquaintances, and a large number were lodging at the tavern just mentioned. They had ignored the holy time of Mass, drinking and carousing. Toward nightfall, the greater part of them were too much intoxicated to take any share in the anxiety felt by the more steady members of the community or even to notice the strange aspect of nature. Whilst I returned home, I saw them hanging about the veranda of the tavern and lounging in the streets. Their intoxicated condition was plainly revealed by the manner in which they quarreled, wrestled, and rolled on the ground, filling the air all the while with wild shouts and horrid blasphemies. The comet, which was the cause of the strange things in the sky, was named Biela, so named after the name of the man who had calculated its recurring orbit and would identify it thereby when it returned to his sky at the interval of six years and six months and six days. Without explanation on the occasion of this return, the comet had split in two, and now was two-headed, though it cast a combined tail behind it. This year, when it would pass closest to the earth as ever it had, the earth would be bathed in the swathe of glittering gases from its cosmic tail, and one head would burst and fall down. The sun set at 521 that October 8th. Were it not for overcast, the comet should have been clearly seen by the peddler, who quickened his team to break out of the forest to the open prairie. The woods had troubled him all day, ever since his uncomfortable night talk with Muir. The murk of the woods had leered at him with uncertain fires, he thought he saw, and with fancied impressions of eerie blue gleams. The road was a long and lonely road, and he met no one upon it. And there would be no settlements until the woods parted and scattered and he came upon wide prairie. It would be dark soon and he knew he must persist until he arrived safely there. Far, far north of that great city, Chicago, across this northern wilderness where the comet now glanced upon the world above, weirdly bluish gases spread like a pestilential cloud, low-hanging, sickly, thickly, in the air of this far northern county, flowing from the southwest over top of them and causing the eerie sunset that appeared on the prairie that day. And all saw the sky ignite at once, a solid sheet of shuddering flame in one instant from horizon to horizon like the blast of the trumpet of Zion. The methane of another world 
ignited our sky, and those who saw it swore it was the end of the world. And so it began. Peddler saw it, confused by it, as he headed into the sunset. The gleam upon the low ceiling of these strangely boiling clouds, not the cast of gold or rose, but darkly purple, dark in some maleficent intent. And when the sky ignited, when the sheet of fire spread over him, he thought at first it must be a shot of last light from the sun, poking through a chink of this weird cloud, but it was instantly hot, and instantly in many places the treetops exploded in flame, and the blue plasmas creeping like serpents upon the ground cried out in their fire at the very same time. And suddenly the forest around him was an inferno. He hurried his team to the exit of the forest, seeing it now exposed by a suddenly opened a sky, which had shed this poisonous cloud with this extinguishing ignition. The prairie shone with golden light beyond a portal of shooting flames. Birds massing into the air, crying, swarming, rose up from the conflagration in alarm, only to dive back into it, reckless, grieving, distraught ones seeking lost ones, the desperate in search of the hopeless. None of this was seen in Peshtigo, or if it was, it was seen only as a flash in the dusk, a bleaching sudden light like that from a flash powder for a studio camera. Father Pernan was then standing on French Street, speaking with the widow Mrs. Dress, who was chastising her young children, all now young adults, for adventuring into town with these hooligans and half-breeds. The flash stopped their conversation. The wind gusted in fits, hot. Mrs. Dress, looking westward into the gloom, told Father Pernan she was worried. The sky was dark in the west, with something darker than darkness. The air had a strange suffocation about it, and the silence, the mysterious silence, that he could not now explain or well express, was made mysterious as Father Pernan would quietly observe to Mrs. Dress, by the complete absence of birds anywhere to see or hear, the perfect stillness in air, the gust so suddenly felt. At this silence and darkness, Mrs. Dress seemed very anxious, and without a word, she hurried back into her home. The Adonis, now hove to the mid-current of the bay, two miles from shore, was stopped by Captain Robin full stop, and its engines silenced in the middle of the bay, and he stepped out to the pilot house to look up at the night sky. He had seen the great flash from the west, and he had also wondered and worried, but that is not why he stopped. He stopped and stared with all the passengers and all the crew crowding to the deck, all eyes skyward, upon the spectacle of meteorites that overwhelmed the moonless expanse of heaven. Across the bay, across the broad swathe of counties as far south and west as Chicago, 
and north and east across the Great Lake into Canada. On that night, the 8th of October, the comet swept its tail and plunged into our realm, disintegrating, shedding hellish meteorites in its glittering cosmic trail at 3,000 in an hour for 14 hours from sunset until well beyond the dawn of the next day, 50 flaring, darting, dashing meteorites every minute, often occurring simultaneously, driven through the air or toward the ground as if borne on the same interminable current of that hot wind, that hot, dry southwest wind which had utterly parched the land for so many months, had dried all the marshes, and made deserts of all the fields, hurtling fireballs across the sky and bursting in sprays of sparks like fireworks. The comet torched the treetops, which went to flame like tinder with kerosene, or crashed in fiery strikes to the ground and spread fire by explosion upon the prairie and the forests.